Hello and welcome to the Food Connections podcast, the podcast that helps you learn more about the food you eat and connect with those who make it. I'm Dr. Laura Wynas, a registered nutritionist specialising in nutrition research and communication. I'm also delighted to be one of Scotland's 25 regional food tourism ambassadors. In this Food Connections episode, I'm joined by Liz and Ewan from Udney Provender, a company based in Aberdeenshire in northeast Scotland. Liz and Ewan have a very productive small holding, as well as a number of beehives from which they collect and sell some very tasty honey. I actually recorded this episode last summer when I was practicing my podcasting skills, so I'm glad I finally got round to launch the first series of the Food Connections podcast and can actually share the chat I had with Liz and Ewan. They give some really interesting insights on beekeeping, including a surprising find inside a hive, and I also found out what the best taste in honey is in Scotland, and it was one I hadn't heard of before. So I really hope you enjoy listening. Today I'm joined by Liz and Ewan. Welcome, how are you? We're fine, thanks so much for having us on. No problem. First of all, could you just tell us a little bit about yourselves? Sure, so I'm Liz Campbell and I am the owner of Udney Provender. I started it about in 2016, so it's been running for a few years now. Um, I have a background in conservation biology, but before that I had a background in farming and uh, all in all it's sort of come together to me running this small food business with Ewan. Yeah, so luckily I don't have much to do with the day-to-day business running side of it, but I do all the beekeeping for Udney Provender. Professionally, I'm a research scientist and I worked for many years on honeybee health. And through that, I decided to try beekeeping myself so that I wasn't telling beekeepers what to do without actually knowing the applied um, technicalities of beekeeping. So, um, and then that grew and became a bigger hobby. And then we decided we would make honey and sell it uh, commercially. Um, so we, uh, we don't produce that much honey, but it's a significant amount for sale so I do all the beekeeping um, for the business really. So a good combination of background and skills then? Yeah we work it out together, <laughs> we muddle <laughs> through together, we can, we've got different skill sets for it yeah. And actually visited you at your home and you do have a, a variety of plants and animals and it's, it seems like a very thriving environment that you've got. Yeah we've got a little small holding so as I said I had my parents were farmers, I grew up on a farm Although I absolutely loved my childhood, I didn't want to take on the full-scale farm when my dad was looking to retire. It was just too much to fit in with everything else that I wanted to do in my life. And I went on to university and have a degree in biology and conservation biology and things like that. So, but, but I did love that idea of knowing where my food came from, understanding the seasons, being connected to the food and trying to produce as much as you can yourself. So we have a small holding where we've got pigs and we've got chickens and we've got ducks and we've got geese and we grow our own vegetables and and obviously we've got the bees and so we have a wildflower meadow that the bees can forage on and it is um for me it's it's just a lovely lifestyle and and running the business through it, it gives us an opportunity to live that lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it sounds sounds very idyllic. The reality, especially at this time of year in sort of June, July, August, when everything's go, is pretty full oh, on, and we both work other jobs as well so it's kind of fitting everything around and also with the kids it's it's quite full on although they're getting old enough now that they kind of help out a wee bit I say help kind of, help. <laughs> kind of roped into it yeah. it's good, good experience for them 
Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so I suppose talking about bees then, how important are bees to the environment? Are they absolutely essential for life in general? So it's quite funny actually, my whole outlook on honeybees has changed somewhat um, from what it used to be. So I mean I still see honeybees as hugely important, but I think I've grown to know that all pollinators are important, the sort of general invertebrate life and pollination. And it's not just honeybees, although they are a key part of that because we can manage it. It's solitary bees, bumblebees, flies, wasps, hoverflies, everything is really essential. And I think often it's overstated about honeybees, but one of the things about honeybees is because we can manage them, we can increase numbers of honeybees in areas where we need pollination um, desperately. And so it's something that we can control. Ideally, we'd love to you know, increase habitats for all pollinators, but that's a much bigger question. It's a bit much harder to change, uh, to change that aspect of pollination and manage pollination. So um, honeybees are vital and they do provide, especially in Europe and sort of highly agricultural um, areas and where fruit farming or oilseed drape is such a big thing, then honeybees are a really key component of, of that in terms of sustainable food production. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so how many honeybees or hives do you have at the moment? <laughs> or is it growing? It's quite in flux, actually. So um, depending on the year, at this time of year as well, we, we split a lot of the hives. So because the hives in general, they want to grow throughout the season and they don't just grow in terms of the number of bees within a hive, but each hive will want to split and reproduce. And that's where you get a swarm. So a swarm is the hive reproducing itself and sort of doubling in size you end up with two hives or three hives or four hives from one and this time of year it's quite difficult to keep track because we've got a lot of hives up on the heather moors that have just moved up there to get the heather honey mm-hmm. which is a real premium sort of product and then I've kept a lot of hives down in the lowland to try and get some late season blossom honey so things like lime honey so we've got about I think I've got about 35 hives at the moment and we started the season because the winter was quite um, long. quite long this year. <laughs> it really takes its toll. So you lose a bit more, a few colonies. You always lose a few just due to the cold. So we've grown a lot actually this year from about 20. I've capped at about 35. I didn't want any more than that. It becomes unmanageable. So. But each hive will have maybe 60 to 100,000 bees in it. So we've got a lot of individual bees. Yeah. <laughs> I always tell the farmers, the farmers near us, because they think that, you know, we're just kind of play farming and, it, you know, it's just a hobby thing. But I always, I always say to them, I've got about two million head of bee compared to their thousand <laughs> cattle. So, you know, I think I'm ahead on animal counts. <laughs> yeah, it's a big responsibility. <laughs> yeah. So you said, yeah, you've got the, the hives kind of scattered around does that mean the hives up, uh, you mentioned in the highlands, with the bees feeding off the heather, that'll be producing a honey that's got a very distinct flavour compared to the lowlands ones. So what type of flavours are there with honey? Absolutely. So we're quite lucky where we are that we've got access to a lot of different habitats that have different plants and different floral sources for the bees. And it really does make a huge difference to the the taste and the sort of smells and things of the honey and the consistency even. Mm-hmm. So um, mainly the early part of the year um, in spring, 
there's not many wildflowers out, but the oilseed rape, farmers plant a lot of oilseed rape near us. And that gives a very mild, quite neutral honey. And it's a set honey. So British honeys tend to go hard quite quickly compared to a lot of European honeys. Uh, so a lot of the runny honey that you see in the supermarket won't be UK based. So in, to prevent the oilseed rape honey going rock hard and really hard, we kind of cream it. So we keep it moving and we break up those wee sugar crystals. So it's nice and smooth. And that's the kind of lovely creamy honey that you get that you'll see spreadable, spreadable. Yeah. Um, and it's very neutral and actually a lot of kids and things like that honey, yeah, it's like mild sweet standard honey and then yeah, yeah whereas the heather honey later in the year is a much darker in color much stronger flavor mm. i find that we sell a lot of it to gentlemen of a particular age and <laughs> <laughs> um, it's is a, you find that a lot often children don't like it because they don't associate it as honey it's got such a strong flavor and you every flower will give nectar that tastes slightly different so we'll make honey that's slightly different and you tend to find that the darker the honey the stronger the flavor yeah okay and we get one of our um sort of rarest honeys in scotland i guess that we don't tend to sell it actually we keep it to ourselves because it's so good is the lime so tilia lime which is sort of mainly European plant. It's not, the sort of big tree that you see growing on big estates. They'll have avenues of lime trees and things. Yeah, and it's a lovely, mm -hmm. almost minty flavour. It's got a really sort of greenish tint. Almost green colour, yeah. And it's, it's beautiful. So we try and get that, um, but it's very fickle. Um, and it's got <laughs> like nice warm weather and sort of wet in the evenings. And that doesn't, <laughs> it's usually the other way around. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, lots of variation then. I mean, the... The rapeseed flower uh, honey made from that. I've, I've definitely tried because I think you had some yeah. beehives on my dad's farm, uh, which is very pleased about because, of course, it helps with the pollination. So, um, slightly biased, but it was fantastic honey. Um, so, one question I've always wanted to ask is over the winter, you said it was quite a long winter uh, this last winter, but what happens to bees over winter? What, what do they do? Do they kind of hibernate or? They, they don't make honey over winter, obviously. No, so it's, it's kind of, um, a lot of people think that bees will just hibernate and literally kind of shut down. And they almost do. They go into what's called a torpor, where they're, they're still active, but in a very slow manner. They just slow down the metabolism, slow down all the processes. And they will effectively, on a cold day or cold period over a couple of weeks, they would just cluster down into a really, really tight kind of rugby ball sized cluster. And the queen will be right at the center. And the other bees around will just kind of keep her warm and packed in as insulated as they can be. And they will eat the honey and the sugars that are in the hive and use that to generate heat from the ring muscles. And that keeps the whole cluster warm. And there is, over time, there'll be a sort of bees dying, you know, the edge of the cluster. But you kind of hope by the end of winter, when spring comes along, there's still that critical mass of bees to allow the queen to then start laying again and the hive population to start increasing. So, but, um, but they don't hibernate. If you do get a warm sunny day during the winter, they will leave the hive, they will go and uh, forage on any winter flowers, ivy and things that are flowering throughout the winter. They will go and collect a bit of nectar just to replenish their stores a bit. And they also need to leave the hive throughout the winter to do cleaning jobs. They need to remove dead bees and be able to go out and just keep themselves clean. So they do need, if the winter's too long, if you have too long a period of very cold weather where they can't get out of the hive, then that's when the hives really Yeah, struggle. you tend to get more disease if, if the bees are confined, confined to their hive for more than maybe a couple of weeks, then they will 
disease will kind of build up and it's not always a mm -hmm. huge problem but it can be if the snowdrops are out and the aconites are out in the garden you and it's sunny even though it might be quite cold as long as the sun's on the hive you see them flying around it's really nice and it's, people are always quite surprised that it you, is always the promise of spring yeah. to see the bees yeah. out on the early winter <laughs> you know that spring is coming we've actually planted a lot of willows on our small holdings so we've got a couple of thousand willow trees and they're just getting to the point now where they have um, a lot of catkins and the bees will get very early pollen off that. And that was kind of part of the plan. So, you know, provide some source when there's not much in nature. Uh, so if you plant some trees that give them early pollen, it means they can build up and start going. So yeah, it's really... Yeah. So are you still getting honey from the beehive over winter then? What... So we won't extract any of that honey um, mm -hmm. that they collect over the winter. So over winter, the bees are, the hive is essentially just one box and all the bees are living in that one box. And in the late spring and summer, when we're trying to collect honey, we'll put extra boxes on that they will fill just with honey that we will then use to extract. But when over winter, it's just the one box, there'll be a mixture of the brood and the eggs and the honey around the edges as well. But that honey that they collect in there, that's just for them to eat. We don't take that honey out of that. Okay. And I wanted to ask you as well about the schools visits that you do. So I believe you go around some schools and talk to kids and teachers and, and explain how honey is made and, and give them information about bees. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Sure, yeah, that's something that I do. Um, I have always loved getting other people enthusiastic about science and the environment and bees now, obviously, as well. And bees are so fascinating. They're something that is very easy to talk to school children about and to gain their, their enthusiasm with. And we have a hive, a special hive that we can actually take around that's got a glass panel on it so that you can see inside the hive. The bees are behind the glass, oh, okay. safely contained, but the, the children can see them working around inside the hive. So I can take that into schools and then talk to the to the children about, you know, what bees look like. It's, it's actually quite amazing how many people will only think of bumblebees when they're thinking about bees. They don't know that honeybees look different from bumblebees. Often when you open it up and let them see the bees, they think they're wasps because they've got that narrow body shape. They, they don't look like the fuzzy bumblebee that they associate with bees. So even talking about the different types of bees, understanding there are different types of bees, talking about their role in pollination and food security. We play a little game about um, how bees are required for making not just honey that we like to eat, but also the strawberries and the apples and the pears and the chocolate that, that we, we need pollinators to do all those jobs. So opening up that idea of food um, sustainability and, and plant and animal interactions, I, I talk about that. And just having fun with with the children about bees and and talking about why they're important and yeah it's it's really rewarding the kids love it I love it it's and the teacher it links into so many different parts of the curriculum that um the teachers love it as well yeah, <laughs> it's a great way of, picking up lots of different bits of the, the curriculum we do always like talking about how most of the bees in the hive are female and that the boys really don't do anything but <laughs> that, that always goes down well with primary school children <laughs> And has there been any kind of funny stories or uh, interesting things that you find when you're keeping bees? Yeah, yeah, um, we we do have, there are always interesting things about beekeeping. There's, you never quite know what you're going to find when you open up the hive. Um, sometimes the queen's missing. Sometimes there's more than one queen <laughs> in the hive and they're having a queen battle, which is all, that also grabs the children's <laughs> attention. Ewan opened up a, a beehive once and... Uh, death's head hawk moth crawled out of the hive which was quite exciting yeah that was I got an absolute shock because I didn't realize the size of them or the noise that they make so I was literally just 
going through my process, opening up the hive, checking all the frames, and suddenly there's this screeching giant moth just coming over <laughs> the edge of the frame. And I, I got, you know, I got fright at first, and then I sort of thought, wow, it's, and you recognize it instantly, the wee skull motif on its back. Is that the one from the, the Silence of the Lambs? Yeah. Poster? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it, it came over and then just, um, you know, my first thought, I'm not, you know, I've worked a lot around insects and things all my life. So I wasn't I was shocked at first. And then my first thought was, oh, I've got to tell people and get <laughs> try and catch it. So it wasn't going anywhere. So I just sort of carefully put it in a wee glass jar. And um, I was able to show the kids who were absolutely beside themselves. Yeah. And then, yeah, we the press got involved. And it's quite, it's quite rare. I mean, they're a really large migratory moth. So they don't tend to breed in the UK. They come from Africa. Um, so it was really unusual and I've spoken to a few beekeepers and some of the, the larger beekeepers who have got thousands of hives, they've maybe seen them once or twice, but they are associated with beehives, which is, mm -hmm. they, they mimic the smell of the queen and they will drink the honey so they can kind of sneak into the hive without being detected. It was really once in a lifetime thing, I don't think I'll see that again. Um, okay. Usually it's wasps and things that are hanging around the hives, so yeah. But it is, it is really interesting, it's another one of those like you said, it mimics mimics the smell of the queen. So it's another one of those stories that you can use to say these things have evolved together. Yeah, they've developed this technique of, of of mimicking the queen, so they're not attacked by the worker bees, and then they've got a safe place to live where they've got a ready food source in the honey. And it's it's you know it's a lovely story about evolution and how different parts of the ecosystem and community live together and uh, synergistically or or. Yeah. Yeah, or yeah, finding the right balance, yeah. each other, but that, but it's all everything works together. Nothing mm -hmm. stands on its own. Well, I think it's quite yeah. good that since we've both got a sciencey background, um, and we're both interested in public engagement, I've done a lot of that through my work, and Liz does it professionally, and it works quite well as a business in terms of when we do, you know, public engagement events where we do a meet the bees events with some of our friends that run like pumpkin patches or local delis and things and we bring the beehive in um, and show the public and it really does work well in terms mm -hmm. of what we want to do and it's a good, mm -hmm. it's a good system we've got yeah and it sounds like you do a lot so apart from the, the honey you you produce quite a few other products yeah so on the small holding um i grow quite a lot of soft fruit so we've got um a large patch of raspberries and strawberries and gooseberries uh, black currants and rhubarb and then we've got the trees around elder trees and crabapple trees and things like that so i use that fruit i, uh, I grew up on a farm as i said and my mum was your typical farmer's wife that you know had her garden had her job helped my dad out on the farm and then spent all her time in the kitchen making chutneys and jams and from a young age, I was told, you don't let something go to waste. If you can't eat it, you preserve it. And so, you know, you make raspberry jam, you make courgette chutney, whatever, you don't let things go to waste. And um, so I have always done that throughout my life. And I use the fruits to make lots of things for us, I make jams and chutneys and things like that. But also um, when we first started thinking about selling the honey as a business, um, what else can I do with the fruit that we grow in our garden? And there's lots of people out there that are already selling jam and chutneys and things like that. So I found that there wasn't really anyone out there selling flavoured vinegars. So I use the fruit to make flavoured vinegars that you can use as salad dressings or also into uh, shrub cordials, which are fruit cordials made with vinegar. 
and I get a lot of raised eyebrows when I suggest that people should drink a cordial made of vinegar, but it gives a very refreshing soft drink <laughs> that you can mix with water or you can use it as a cocktail mixer. It's a very old fashioned recipe. So we use the, the soft fruit to make these, these vinegars and shrubs and they're very popular. We sell a lot of them, especially during the summer, we sell a lot of the vinegars for people to use as salad dressings. Mm. When it comes to Christmas, we sell a lot of the shrubs for people to use in cocktails. Yeah, I've heard them make a, a, a good gin cocktail. Yeah, exactly. Um, so your business it sounds a fantastic kind of thriving business with the, the honeys and the shrubs and the vinegars. So has there been any challenges that you've had in running the business or some things that you've learned along the way you find useful or wish you'd known at the start? <laughs> I think it's it's always challenging running your own business. I think it's the there's the constant sort of pressure on your time. Um, yeah. You don't really have time off, especially when you're doing it from home. But you don't have that separation of work and home. And there's always that nagging feeling of you have to do. You, you should be doing something. Yeah. You should be out picking raspberries. You should be answering emails. You should be doing something. There's not much switch off time, um, and the seasonality of it also adds to that. You know especially during bee season when yeah. the swarm, when the swarms might be happening it's not a case of oh I'll just leave it tomorrow if, if you leave it until tomorrow you might have lost the wee bees because they've swarmed so there's that constant pressure of having to do it all the time I think if I'd known everything that I was happy to do at the beginning I probably wouldn't have started so in a way it was <laughs> nice to, to be a bit naive about it before you know um sort of all the food hygiene things and things that you have to to go through and, mm-hmm. and that's some of the, the one of the biggest things we I was going from like a small, a very small micro cottage industry where we'd literally sold 100 jars of honey and 100 jars of vinegars over a summer when we started to now selling substantially more than that. And it was the, the change in the process, food processing, and how we could reduce the time we spend on actually having to process food or get it ready and bottle it. And so we built a small, we're quite lucky we had an old part of the house part of the, the sort of an old garage, garage that we didn't use and we converted that into a commercial kitchen which it helps with the work-life balance a small bit it as well does, because yeah. it separates you have that area for doing the food processing and then when you close the door and you come into the house although your mind's maybe still on it yeah. but it is physical separation and you're not just constantly yeah whereas when we first started it was in our own kitchen so you know I'd send the kids off to school I'd sterilize the kitchen I'd get started and I'd have to clear it all away before the kids came home and I made dinner whereas now <laughs> I at least you know have it in a separate part of the house and um and I don't have the children's dinner crumbs on the table before I get started and things like that it is they are they are separate parts of the house and with the the honey side of it it's yeah it's amazing so I guess I was quite naive as well and thinking that oh, I could do this. And all, at some point, I thought we could do it full time. And, you know, it's not totally gone away. <laughs> Still, sometimes I get fanciful and think I might do it full time. But um, going from, we used to have a couple of hives that would get some honey out. And then thinking, oh, if we just increase this and go up to 50 hives or 60 hives, and then the costs on your time are so huge. And actually the costs to transport things you suddenly need a lot more equipment and you need um, suddenly you need a, a trailer to move 20 hives instead of just putting them in the back of the van and yeah um, and suddenly you know to extract the honey you need a bigger extractor and you need um you need a room dedicated a room to dedicated it unless to you want honey all over Liz's <laughs> lovely commercial kitchen <laughs> one thing that that we say every year is 
why does honey have to be so sticky? It gets to the extracting period and your whole life is sticky. Everything is sticky. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> but yeah, we've got it done pretty well now. We're, yeah, we're, we're quite a slick quite operation. We get it, we get it extracted pretty quick. And we know a lot of the, the tricks of the trade. And it is just, a lot of it's just experience. I mean, someone can tell you how you manage hives and manage a business. And how you Actually, until you do it, do it yourself. yourself, you learn your own way to do these things. And it's... Learn what's worked. Yeah, you. yeah, it's tough. And I think with, like, with lots of things, it's really about how much are you prepared to do? Are you really prepared to work until 11 o'clock at night during the summer? And, you know, we're making it sound awful. During the winter, there really isn't all that much to do with the bees. Yeah. It's, it's very quiet. There's, there's a very... Um, sort of intense period between April and August where you have to do a lot of work with the bees but then over the winter they really look after themselves and we really don't have to do very much to them at all so it is very intense seasonally. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's funny as well with the seasonality my whole mindset around the seasonality has changed completely since we've been doing all the fruit and vegetables so the honey bees is that I now think of when I take my bees up to the heather in um, last week and that's them there for sort of six weeks getting heather honey and then I'll go and bring them down and then that's the season kind of over and I almost think that's winter and it's only August <laughs> yeah. but I'm like that's that's just done that's, summer, done, that's yeah. summer over and it's really not so it kind of tricks you into thinking the year's over so I find that yeah. quite difficult actually it's, it's I find it in a way I find it quite nice that we are so linked to the seasons in in what we do you know, with the bees getting them ready in the spring and um, with the fruit picking and with the changing of the seasons i do like that connection with, mm -hmm. with the seasons with, with the land that we have i do think when you live in a you know we've both done it living in a city doing doing a job in a building with maybe a window if you're lucky you can <laughs> be detached from the real world uh, from nature from the natural world and from the seasons and i do like i find it very therapeutic to be out in a thunderstorm <laughs> doing it outside and being connected to the weather to the seasonality can i just say i don't like beekeeping in a thunderstorm that would be <laughs> horrendous <laughs> sounds quite dangerous um yeah. But, but yeah no that's been absolutely fascinating thank you so much for sharing your story and uh, all your knowledge and experiences of beekeeping and of the, the small holding that you've got and amazing products uh that go well on buttrays is my favorite way to have it i would say <laughs> some honey on a buttery <laughs> yeah absolutely have you got any not, top, not... top tips for recipes or ways to use your honey Ooh, so <laughs> I mean my favorite is probably just the set honey on freshly made bread just you can't yeah. really beat that so just spread it nice and thickly on, on nice bread. and simple I also drink, I drink a lot of honey if I'm feeling unwell mix it with hot water I mm -hmm. it's very there's something very comforting and very soothing about drinking honey and lemon yeah it's funny because we have so much honey in the house but I actually don't use it that much myself <laughs> I do love it I tend to use it more and if I'm doing barbecues or if I'm doing some cooking outdoors or cooking I would use it in in recipes as a marinade or part of a sauce and things yeah it also comes out at Christmas with the cheese and crackers yeah cheese so yeah Montego cheese with honey is lovely that's one of my favorites it might just be the cheese but you know <laughs> it's a good excuse I'm getting hungry now I'm gonna search the cupboard for a <laughs> jar of honey <laughs> well thank you so much for your time that's been fantastic well thanks so much for talking to yeah, us thank we, you very much we, we love we can talk about these all day long as so. you can probably tell <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to this Food Connections podcast. Do check out the show notes for more information related to this episode. And if you enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and do get in contact with me if you have any comments or suggestions for future guests. See you next time.